0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. If you would turn, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 begins a section of God's Word, 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14, Where our Lord gives us specific instructions and corrections concerning worship. You see on the screen in front of you different pictures that could describe worship. Formal liturgy, a church that might be like ours, a young young boy reading the Bible all alone. These are all symbols or expressions of worship. Paul, as he begins in 1 Corinthians 11, says, Now I praise you, because you remember me in everything, and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. And he begins this section, and you begin to wonder, okay, well, what what is the description of God's authority and how it manifests itself in our lives and our family, how does that impact us today? Well, there are several sections that Paul will go through. He talks here about creation order and how that's going to be reflected in the church of the living God. He talks about the abuses in the Lord's Supper. He talks about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. And our brother Bo did a great job in describing spiritual gifts. And I do want to let you know that um, we are not going to be talking much about spiritual gifts, the issues of cessation or continuationism. As a fellowship, Faith Bible Church believes that God has appointed specific gifts for a particular time tied to the Apostles. So we are what some people would call cessationist. We do not believe that some of the miraculous, spectacular public gifts continue through the church age and are appropriately manifested today. Can God do whatever he wants? Of course. Does God act out of character with himself? No. So, we're not going to be addressing that. I believe what we've sufficiently covered that in the past. In the midst of this discussion of worship, and the abuses of worship, 1 Corinthians 13 is there, the love chapter. Why is that? And then 1 Corinthians 14, where there's instruction on tongues, prophecy, edification, orderly worship, and women speaking in church. So, as we begin, let's look at this text, 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, and ask the question, what were the Corinthians doing right? What were they doing right? And the clue is right there in that first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, first two verses. What are they doing right? What are the Corinthians doing right? Don't all speak at once, it gets confusing. Yes, Calm down. Maintaining traditions. Maintaining traditions. Good. What traditions are these? He spent about how many months with them? About 18 months, right? So he was teaching them. He was teaching them from the Old Testament. He was delivering them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was instructing them in the way of worship, proper worship, right? So they also, look at the text. I praise you because you remember me in everything. So some were converted under his ministry. They listened to him. They were concerned about the church. That's another good thing they did, right? They wrote him letters. They said, hey, Paul, this is happening. What, What can we do here? They saw him as one of God's gifts to the church to help, to grow, to edify, to learn from, right? So they listened. They appreciated him. But also, as had been mentioned, they hold firmly to the traditions that Paul delivered them. They were God's children. They were beloved of the Lord. As a matter of fact, through the, both letters that we have to the Corinthian church, you see Paul using beloved, Paul using the term brethren, Paul confirming that he thanks God in every remembrance of them because of the work that God has done, right? So that's another good thing that they're involved with. They are part of the universal church. They held family firmly to the traditions. They worshiped the living and risen Savior. <clears throat> now, if you had to point to a portion of God's Word, a scripture reference, that would identify that the people of God are worshipers, what verses come to mind? What verses can you think of that show that if you're a child of God, you will worship Him? I know all you Bible scholars, you're just itching to just say something. Good. No, we're thinking. We're thinking. You're thinking. Okay, you're thinking. Marilyn says she's thinking. I stumped a teacher. Yes! Yes, Kathy. Yeah. I will look to the hills from whence come my help. My health co- comes from the Lord. All right, good. What else? So the psalmist is saying, I will look. That's the natural inclination of heart. Can you think of a passage in Romans where there's a natural inclination of the heart to cry out, Abba Father, right? How about the verse that talks about God listening to the prayers of his elect who cry out day and night, right? How about the verse that talks about Well, Psalm 92, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to his name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness by night. Right? Talking about the wicked who don't do that, but they perish like the grass. How about the the verse that says, praise is becoming to the upright. If you're upright, if you're right with God, it's very appropriate that you would be praising God. Let me ask you another question. When you read through some of the letters of Paul, he gives a great theological discourse, and he describes the majesty, the personhood of God, and his wonderful works. What does he do as he dwells upon this, and he, as he writes this to the church? He breaks out in a doxology, doesn't he? And you find this several times throughout the New Testament. We are people who have been reached with the gospel. It informs us, it shapes us, and it sustains our worship. Because we know that the breath of God hung the foundation of the earth and that man was fashioned in his image, we worship the creator God. Since we know the fall of our parents in the garden and how God made a covenant with them throughout the Old Testament to rescue them, we worship the God of mercy. We read of the life, the death, the resurrection, of, and return of Christ, so we worship the God who rescues. We worship God because someone taught us, like the Apostle Paul taught the people in Corinth, who he is, what he has done. Because of the glories we have seen, and many have never seen, we worship him. And that's part of the reason why You and I are here today when we as a people set apart the day to worship God. Concern for the proper worship of God was central to the Reformation, even as it's central to our most important theological debates today. Our concept of worship is inextricably tied to our understanding of God and his sovereign authority to reveal the worship he desires, deserves, and demands is God serious that he should be worshipped in a certain way can you think of any example from the scriptures where God confirmed that he would not be treated lightly concerning worship Dan set up altars in the hills. And yep. Made priests out of people that didn't. And God said, no, it's not the way to do it. That's right. So throughout the time of the kings, there were those places of worship set up outside of the temple, which God had not commanded, nor he had even thought of. Which phrase, by the way, is used in God's condemnation of Baal worship, Molech worship, where children would be offered up in flames. No. Who else? Okay. Yes. Uh, Romans 12. I think this may be the King James Version. But I urge you, dear fellow brethren, by the mercies of, of God, to present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual service of worship. Excellent. Romans 12, 1 and 2. That is our spiritual service of worship that we would present ourselves and our entire being as worship to the living God. Think about Nadab and Abihu. What did they do? Do you remember? They offered strange fire. That was a fire that they concocted of their own thoughts concerning incense that God had already commanded should not be used for anything in a personal. It could only be used in worship. But they decided to be creative and introduce on their own things that No, God had not commanded. Uh, Hughes Oliphant Old once summarized the reformer's understanding of worship in terms of its sense of majesty and sovereignty of God, its sense of reverence, of simple dignity, its conviction that worship must, above all, serve the praise of God. This path of renewal may not be exactly what everyone is looking for. We tend to worship the way we want to worship, just as the Corinthians fell into as well. It's only, it is only the path back to worship that God seeks. And the recovery of our worship is the witness of his infinite glory, perfection, and service to him and to his people. Scripture makes clear that worship is something that we do not just something we attend it is not merely an issue for the pastor the worship team the ushers it is something that is responsibility the whole congregation the church is a place where the treasure of the gospel shines forth in brilliant light to warm our hearts to warm our minds to worship and adore the living God will styles change have they changed in our lifetime? Yes, they will. Will there be a diversity of styles in worship? <clears throat> I think Ernie talks about the uh, going to the Dominican Republic and people playing music on uh, washboards and making a noise. Yeah, cheese graters. <laughs> right. Those things will change, and they will change in cultural, different cultural settings. But there is one glorious purpose in. Following a clear biblical pattern. We should measure everything by the norm of scripture in which God has revealed how he wishes to be worshipped. The Corinthians, however, were incorporating elements from their culture into the worship that were dishonoring to God. They were incorporating elements from their culture into the worship that was dishonoring to God. And the first thing that he talks about, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 4, is head coverings. Head coverings. So when Paul discusses hairstyles and head coverings, we have to keep in mind that he was telling his readers to adopt Christian practices in a pagan world. Paul objected to blurring the genders, but wanted the Corinthians to demonstrate visually the clear distinction between men and women. Now, there are a variety of opinions on this matter. And some of you may have wrestled with this in the past. Some of you ladies may have worn head coverings in your attendance of church worship. We have had people at Faith Bible Church who believe that it is totally biblical to wear head coverings. And I am not about to argue vehemently against these dear women who are convicted of God to do those things. In their native land... And in their colonies, the Romans covered their heads during private and public devotions. Offering sacrifices, praying, or prophesying, they would pull their toga forward over their heads. That devotional practice may have penetrated society in Corinth, which was a Roman colony. So the men would do this in the worship services of the church. So, when Paul reminds Christian men to pray and prophesy with head uncovered, the recommendation fits the context of shunning the worship of idols, which is what that culture had been doing. Paul wanted the Corinthians to separate themselves from pagan customs and to be distinct in their Christian practice. The context here implies that in Corinth, head covering would have been completely ridiculous for a man and completely proper for a woman. Paul wishes to maintain a clear distinction between his sexes so that no man and no woman will bring dishonor to the church. He does not want a man to cover his head in public worship. Service for that act reflects pagan practice of the time and implicitly rejects the creation order. The creation order being that man is to be the head of the relationship and husband wife relationship and man also has specific distinct responsibilities in the local church. Now so Paul talks about the fact that women are not to cover their or are to cover their heads when they're praying or prophesying. Does that contradict what Paul later says in First Corinthians 14 or in Timothy? The answer, obviously, is no. But what's the distinction? What is the distinction? Well, the distinction is this. Praying and prophesying appear to take place in a public worship service. It is best to understand that Paul is in 1 Corinthians 11 referring to activities of believers in ministry before the Lord and the public where a clear testimony is essential. It's audible prayer. Prayer is common, but prophecy occasional. You have Priscilla and Aquila working together. You have Simeon and Anna, the prophetesses, uh, spending their time in the temple courts, worshiping God in prayer. With regard to the covering of a woman's head, Paul conveys to the Corinthian women that they should honor their husbands by observing the cultural standards of the day. In Paul's day, numerous symbols were used to signify the woman's subordinate relationship to men, particularly of wives to husbands. Now, as with meat offered idols, there was nothing in the wearing or not wearing of the head covering that was right or wrong. It was the rebellion against the God-ordained roles that was spoken of. Now, I have a quote there on your paper, and I think this is helpful to see because, again, as we've been studying Corinthians, we know that there are things that existed in the day of Corinth and today, head coverings for women by John MacArthur. We know from secular history that various movements of women's liberation and feminism appeared in the Roman Empire during New Testament times. Women would often take off their veils or other head coverings and cut their hair in order to look like men. Much as in our own day, some women were demanding to be treated exactly like men and they attacked marriage and the raising of children as unjust restrictions of their rights. You can read the rest of that for yourself. But Paul gives the women the choice. They can either honor their husbands in a created order or recognize that there is a stigma at that time attached to them as the stigma that society would impose. Yes, question. No, I grew up in Presbyterian. Lutheran and Presbyterian. And we never entered the sanctuary without. Them. Yep. <clears throat> yep. And if someone in my family forgot a hat, they put a handkerchief over their head. But you never entered the sanctuary. Yep. In America, not too long ago, within some of our lifetimes, that was the rigor that women going into worship would cover their heads either with a hat, a scarf, a veil, or even a handkerchief if they had forgotten one. But <clears throat> Paul speaks here that first, every man should speak to or for the Lord clearly as a man, and every woman should speak to or for the Lord clearly as a woman. God does not want that distinction to be blurred. So if you look at the artifacts of Greco-Roman times within the first century, all of the depictions of men have short hair. Nature teaches us that it is a shame for men to have short hair, excuse me, long hair, Because we have testosterone, and our hair falls out. And some of you are touching your husband's hair. And his bald spots. But this is an important distinction then. And we need to wrestle with that issue today. Because there is this encroaching militant feminism that would usurp the proper God-given order and roles that we have been given to reflect his created order. This is something to be wrestled with and something not to be taken lightly because there are people who have deeply held convictions on this matter. Now we should respect each other in that regard and give each other the time to work on those issues. There was also a problem, wasn't there, in the Lord's table, the feasting and drinking. The problem of being focused on yourselves or others like you was so prevalent in Corinth that people would eat and drink to the point of gluttony or drunkenness, celebrating the Lord's table. So, people were focused on themselves, their preferences, their attitudes, what they wanted to do within the context of the church service. Have you ever seen the slogan, this ain't your grandfather's church? (laughs) Ever seen that or heard of that? Well, it's that same type of attitude that is reflected not only in Corinth, but in our day as well, where people will boast that a church is not your grandfather's church, It's a church for today's people, today's world. And we can unfortunately see that there is a motto that was very popular in the 90s, this not your grandfather's church thing, that could actually exclude people. What is the commandment that Christ gave to his people in Matthew 28? Go into what? all the world and preach the gospel to who all people all people all nations right all ethnicities all groups all right we're not going to seek to exclude people to make to force everybody into a singular demographic organizations that are not christian can build a following by focusing on a particular demographic god never commands that he commands going to all people all nations If we define our fellowship in opposition to what's dear to us, it's not likely to make a place for people who might differ. In fact, you know, we could abandon and jettison some of the things that are quite important, whether it is a particular age group, a particular type of ministry, we can have some real serious flaws. We're to go to all the nations. This consumer mindset, this self-centered entitlement can wreak havoc in the church. What are some of the problems that can arise from such an emphasis where we demand that everybody fit our particular preference. What are some of the problems that rise up in the church? Yes, Shelley. Yeah. The church will, you know, have a particular message that is particularly sharply focused and it will exclude people. What else? What other problems could exist where there's a self-centered emphasis on our preferences? Yeah, you create the same problem that they had in Corinth, don't you? You know, a particular teacher, you know, a particular style of worship. Let's, let's look at a couple of items. The Corinthians were not edifying each other and they were not caring for each other. What can be the result? Well, one, there can be more conflicts in church fights. When church members have an entitlement mentality, they get angry when they don't get their way. It leads to conflict it leads to church fights. Number two, pastor and staff can be perceived to be hired hands. They report to us. We are their bosses. And so you bring the model of the world into the church. And instead of being brothers and sisters united in a common cause, there's this forced and false Hierarchical structure that is demeaning. Forget the idea of the pastor teacher equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. Entitled members view themselves to be workers paid to all or most of the ministry. After all, that's what we pay them for. Number three, it does keep the focus off the Great Commission and The great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. This consumer-driven entitlement mentality can destroy the very commandment that our Lord says is the greatest commandment of all. I'm not to love myself above God and above others and enforce my will upon others. It also can create un healthy alliances. If we we demand that the church serve us, we can form alliances with other church members of similar unhealthy mindsets. Those are cliques and power groups. They can be members of an extended family. They can be a diverse group of members simply determined to get their own way. And the history of church is riddled with that sort of thing. you have some disaffected member, some, somebody who's upset about something, and they go around gossiping, and now they're bringing a little you know, group of, about that issue together, and it can absolutely destroy the church. It can destroy the unity and the fellowship of a local, local body of God's people. And you know, we are to work hard to preserve the unity of the faith and to quell our own drive to have everything our way. And this is what happened with the Corinthians. This is something that happens to us today. It can turn the giving into dues. What is to be a sacrifice of love and a donation based on a cheerful heart can become an obligation for others to follow after us I've given so much money to the church and they can't they can't grant me in a simple request there's a problem there it can also turn the building into a shrine it can also turn the building into a shrine when members insist on getting their own way the church facility becomes an object of our own desires the fight could be over the color of paint, carpet, a room, chairs versus pews, or even the design of the pulpit itself. The sad possibilities are endless. The Corinthians did not have an appropriate fear, reverence, and love of God in their worship. And so, some were chastened by God's hand. If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, 27-32, because of this inappropriate approach to God, what happened to some of these people? What was the result? What does the text say? They were sick and they died. They were infirm, sick, or died because of God's judgment. Now, notice this chastisement is different than final condemnation. See verse 32. There's a difference there. Well, they were drinking and taking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. What, what does unworthy manner mean? I mean, are any of us worthy of the sacrifice that God gives in Christ? No. Well, that's, that rhetorical question is easily answered. But what does it mean that they were drinking and eating in an unworthy manner. Yes? Their hearts, not <clears throat> their hearts were not repentant. Some people might think that they were not worthy of such food and drink. And so, underestimating the sacrifice of Christ. You know, he did not do enough work, I need to do something. That's an unworthy manner. Number two, people coming without repentance, as our sister indicated, from sin and without self-examination. Number three, In the Corinthian context, there were wealthy Corinthians who were coming and they had contempt for the poor. They did not care for what their brothers and sisters' needs were. And so they were engaging in this gluttonous feast without care for the needs of the... That's why Paul said, don't you have homes to do this thing? Go eat at home. You know, don't forsake you. Number four, unworthy manner could be failing to show gratitude to Christ By turning the sacrament into a frivolous feast, Dan. Is it possible that they were in their pagan ways, feasting as part of their religious ceremonies? The question is, you know, did the Corinthians reflect some of these idolatrous feasts in their attitude that they brought into the worship of the living God? And I have to say yes, because that's what worship consisted of in that Corinthian culture. Yeah, Yeah. so they, they were used to this and it engaged all sorts of bad behavior, you know, gluttony and dr- drunkenness and all sorts of immorality. So yeah, there was a washover from the culture. And perhaps, perhaps this comment, unworthy manner, was also what Paul used to confront those who saw the table as a mere ritual. And how many times have you and I been guilty of that? How many times have you and I <clears throat> said, okay, this is the part of the worship when we're going to do the Lord's table. All right, now I've got to wait until the stuff passes down. Okay, now we're hearing somebody's. We can do that. We can fall into that and not see it as a celebration of what God has done. We need to be intentional in thinking about how we participate in the Lord's table because it is His table. He invites us to that. He brings us to that. He has gone out into the, into the, the fields and the, and, the, and, the, and the back roads and the ditches and has compelled us to come sit at His table. He has given us the, the robe of righteousness whereby we can sit at the table And we are welcomed as his guests. I kind of wish we were doing Lord's Table today. (laughs) Because we need to, next week, we need to remember this as we approach the Lord's Table. The Corinthians also did not use the gifts honorably. They did not use the gifts honorably. There There was a genuine lack of discernment. And if you go to 1 Corinthians 12, turn over there if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Talks about the use of spiritual gifts. And again, by the way, if you have a question on that issue of continuationism or or cessation, if if that's something you wrestle with, I'd, I'd urge you, talk to one of the elders about that. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. There was an ignorance. Okay? Paul had to address. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says... Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There was a lack of discernment. There was a lack of understanding. There was a lack of knowledge concerning the truths of God's Word. Paul did not want them to be unaware. Worship is not just an emotional exercise with God words or musical sounds that induce certain feelings. Worship is certainly not a mystical catharsis of human passion detached from all rational thought and reason. True worship is a response of adoration and praise to the living God and to the truth that he has revealed. Psalm 145 and verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. We are to worship in what? Spirit and in truth. And it must be combined. If we are to worship in spirit and truth, and the word of God is truth, we must worship out of an understanding of the word of God. Some preachers seem to specialize in sermons that are only marginally biblical, but move the congregation to laugh or cry with clever stories and anecdotes. These can be fun, entertaining, interesting. But, as that little quote from Mr. Spurgeon said, it is better to preach five words, words of God's word than five million words of man's wisdom. Word and worship being indissoluble to each other, all adoration is an intelligent and loving response to the revelation of our infinite and glorious creator, redeemer. Preaching is making known the name of the Lord, and worship is praising the name of the Lord made known. Didn't Paul address this in the beginning of his letter to the Corinthians? What is God pleased to use the foolishness of? Bryce, what's the answer? Preaching, his wisdom. God's going to use the foolishness of preaching to bring others to himself. And that is a major portion of worship. There, there, there's there's so many times that we, in our day, believe that worship is simply people twanging on guitars. And as much as I enjoy twanging on my guitar, <laughs> music is a portion of the worship, but it has to be centered and focused on the grand and glorious truths of who God is. Well, the worship is over now. Let's hear the sermon. <laughs> No. <laughs> it's part. It is part and parcel. It is all portion of that. Somebody comes to our fellowship and they say, well, why are you reading a disconnected you know, part of God's word? Well, because God has commanded that we pay attention to the public reading of scripture. You know, We believe in doing what God tells us to do, what the New Testament church exemplifies, right? There's a, there's a name for that type of work principle. What is the, what is the name of that principle? The regulative principle, all right? We're going to do those things that God commands and that His Word and His people exemplify. The purpose of preaching is not merely to create an emotional experience. The preacher's primary duty is not to stir the emotions of his audience, but to preach the word in season, out of season, with great patience and instruction. The calling of everyone who speaks the word of God is to teach about him and lay the foundation of his knowledge through which worship comes. Word and worship are indissolubly connected. Well, Corinthians also, oops, we'll get back to that. (laughs) Not easy to read, I'm afraid. The gifts were not being used for the common good. Look at 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7 there. To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The evidence of the Spirit's presence in the life of believers serves the common good of the entire community. And the Corinthians were Forsaking that. They were misusing the gifts and serving themselves. The body has memory, many members and illustrates the unity and diversity of the body with regard to gifts. When a church manifests the Spirit through everyone using their gifts, what blessings can occur? What blessings can occur when you use your gifts to the honor and glory of God, when you are serving others, using the abilities that God has given you, the talents that he has invested in you, and for which we are accountable? What blessings can occur? What good things come out of that? Someone else can be encouraged. Someone else can be encouraged. Building each other up into faith. Strengthening each other. Enabling each other to walk more faithfully. Right? What else? <clears throat> that knowledge is totally able, uh, unable to be measured. We cannot measure the benefit that that is going to give someone. Christians receive great blessings from Exercising their own gifts and being the recipient of others. The church becomes a dynamic witness with power and effectiveness that it cannot otherwise have when you have people of various ages, various ethnicities, different backgrounds coming together and serving each other through the gifts that God has given. Spiritual leaders emerge and are grown and developed for God's glory and the future health of the church. When everyone is encouraged to use their gifts. Does that make sense? So you have someone who is converted and rapidly it's seen that they have a great love and understanding of the Word of God and then they begin to help teach in a Sunday school class. And then they're teaching in other classes. And then they're, they're able to speak a word of encouragement from the pulpit. And future leaders of the church become a blessing because people are encouraged and mentored, and developed to use their gifts. The church, where everyone uses their gifts in the power of the Holy Spirit, experiences a deep joy, and unity, and love, and fellowship that no amount of human effort can reproduce. Yes, Kathy. amen thank you and that's that's a great thing the camp reveal experience that many of us participated in was a great opportunity for a local mission field where we could of various ages and various abilities to commit to time so that this chef would say hey what is it with you people where are you from what's the church you guys attend great opportunity sister you had a comment or question The question was, because of the utilization of the phrase one spirit, uh, is it possible that the Corinthians uh, may have been confused about the nature of the spirit, the spirit of God? It is possible. I'll really have to get back to you on that. Okay, and then, of course, Satan would be a spirit. Satan, that's right. Satan is a spirit. He kept emphasizing one spirit. Well, I think the idea there is one spirit, one unity, one body. I think it's... yeah. I don't know if they, they were, but I'll have to get back to you on that. Uh, so, there was competition, jealousy, denigration of some gifts, and the exaltation of others. First Corinthians twelve fourteen through seventeen. If someone was tempted to grumble, complain, and be ungrateful, you know they could say, "Hey, it's not my church; it's your church." You know, really, I have nothing to offer. Why do I participate? And then we go to 1 Corinthians thirteen. There was a lack of love, ability to honor others, humility, temperance, and forbearance. Why was 1 Corinthians 13 put right in the midst of that? Yeah, that is is something that is prevalent today where you have a total lack of understanding of God's authority and the blessings of being part of a corporate local fellowship um, so that there are individual house churches which are extremely small, especially uh, fractional, uh, and they divide rather easily and rather quickly. Matter of fact, uh, I'm... um, Some of us know an individual who is part of such an experience, and they were bemoaning the fact that people come and go as they please. Well, what do you expect? You're forming your whole church on that very concept. So, if people come and go as they please, what did you expect, really? There's a a great attitude today uh, that is... um, exemplified by our own individualism and our um, our autonomy our desire to be wouldn't even have house churches they do their own without leadership or yeah that that goes that brings it to the full extreme doesn't it you know and then they forsake the commandment that we are to meet together uh, that they are to be in subject to elders that they are used to gifts in you know There are a lot of things we've talked about previously, but let me read this to you. This is The Spirit of the Age. Uh, This was written by William Ernest Henley in 1876. Uh, He wrote it when he was 27 years old. He battled tuberculosis of the bones all of his life and finally died at 53. He was an atheist. Uh, He didn't believe that there was any larger purpose to his pain. It was just the bludgeonings of chance. His only hope was to take his bludgeonings like a man, which to him meant a stoic uh, resolve never to surrender. And he wrote this poem. You'll you'll know the last line. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloodied a woman by the name of Dorothy Day wrote the poem that you have on your paper in contrast to this attitude. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, the life with him and his the aid, that, despite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though, straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Paul, as he begins First Corinthians 13... addresses this issue. He says, if I speak, but don't have love, what is he? A noisy gong, right? Clanging cymbal. If he has prophecy, but does not have love, he is nothing. If you look at First Corinthians 13, those first few verses, he goes on to say in the third comparison, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and surrender my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. nothing. He shows us the desperate condition that we are in if we insist on following our own way. Then Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, talks about order in worship. Order in worship. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 23 through 33, why is order important in worship? Well, he says this. If someone comes in, all speaks in tongues, and an ungifted man or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? There's something to be said for understanding the impact of our public service to others. Will they necessarily accept the wisdom of God? No. We don't know. But the wisdom of God is to be presented. And as we present that wisdom, we are to do it in an orderly fashion. We want, verse 25, well, verse 24, really. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. So he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. We want that. Verse 28, if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. Let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. In verse 33, finally, God is not a God of confusion, but peace. Our worship services can be different. They can change in terms of the order of worship, but they must be orderly to reflect who God is. Final thing I'd like to briefly touch on is the fact that people were were usurping the roles, abilities, and gifts that God had given others. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34-37. through In Corinth, people were um, usurping the roles that God has given them, and there were women who were speaking out of place. Men and women equally were abusing um, God's principles and how he demanded to be worshiped. I'm very, don't have a lot of time here, but I want to quickly say this first. Um, In the Judeo-Christian history, in the literature of God's word, uh, Christianity has been and remains a force that liberates women from oppression and servitude. Um, you think about the Old Testament, godly women, Abigail, Esther, JL, the Proverbs 31 woman, Deborah, you know, God in his word and in his people makes certain that there are laws codified to protect women. You know, New Testament, you have many godly women who are used of, of God to support the disciples and their ministry, um, and so there is obviously an honored and revered place for godly women among us, um, and the scriptures exalt women. They do not; it does not oppress them. It does talk about the appropriate roles that God has given us, and if there is a question on that, again, I would encourage you to speak to the elders, but for the sake of time, I'm going to have to keep my comments short. One word of caution uh, that I would give at the end here is that there are those people who say that women should be in the public pulpits, and there are such women today uh, who, in the past, have been uh, faithful proponents of God's Word. One such individual is Beth Moore. At one time, Beth Moore was a respected uh, Bible teacher. And some of the women here today and some of those that are listening to the recording may have benefited from Ms. Moore's teachings. However, um, she has shown an incredible lack of discernment, an unhealthy ecumenism, a careless use of words, and a poor exegesis of the Word of God. According to Ms. Moore, she is God's divine instrument, and he is giving her extra biblical revelation to give to the church. She has also, like the Corinthians, usurped uh, the role that God has given godly women who are gifted in our uh, fellowships by insisting that she be able to teach and have authority over men. As such, I would warn you, away from Beth Moore, there are plenty of other good teachers that are out there. Again, if this is an issue that you wonder about, uh, talk to one of the elders. We'll be happy to give you guidance. We're thankful for the resources that God has given us, but we have an obligation to warn people away from those who cause disruption, disunity, and um, usurp their God-given roles and abilities. So we're going to close. We've run totally out of time. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth this day, and we praise you in the name of your Son. Amen.